to say that it's been quite a, a week would be a bit of an understatement for those of us here in Boston, obviously. I, I do want to say just first that I was so relieved, and this doesn't take away anything from those who are bereaved right now, from the four families that are bereaved, or from the many who have been injured in a life-altering way, but I was so relieved never to get the email or the call or the text from any of you that any of you were directly involved or hurt. And I praise God and I thank God for that, for this community. At the same time, grieving as all of us do with those who have been hurt this week. It's been a week of all kinds of different experiences for us, of a bombing on a beautiful day and a shootout in a neighborhood that could have been any of ours and a manhunt and families bereaved the president in town, a healing service for the whole city. There's been a lot of different experiences this week. There's been with those experiences a tremendous amount of different emotions from beginning with shock and disbelief, I think, for most of us, to a sense of anger and frustration and confusion and chaoticness, disappointment, sadness, grief, Maybe just numbness in the midst of so many graphic images and videos and so on. And that's where we come tonight from all of these places, all these experiences and all of these emotions. And what I want to do with you in this time briefly this evening is is to reflect on, so how do we as Christians live in a world like this? How do do you and and how do I live in a world like this? And, And granted that, again... We've been affected by this in different ways. I think we have to acknowledge that, and yet we've all been affected. And So I want to offer something that I've, that I've reflected on out of two passages kind of ping-ponging back and forth with one another in thinking about this time together with you. One is from Romans 8 that we had read in that great passage where Paul gets to the height of Christian hope. And the other is from Psalm 62, the psalm that we had read and read to one another this evening, a psalm of refuge in a God in a world of trouble. And I want to bring out three things, three ways that we might go forward faithfully as the church, as God's people in the midst of what we've just walked through, what we're continuing to walk through as a community, a larger community here in greater Boston, and particularly how we would do that as followers of Jesus who in this season of all seasons are are celebrating God's victory over sin and evil and death, and we're proclaiming the resurrection. So how do we do this in this world? Two of the things that I want to say come directly out of verse 23 of Romans 8. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that is the first fruits, the taste of the resurrection life, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We groan inwardly because the world isn't right. And what happened on Monday with innocent people dying, with innocent people being changed forever, with bombs going off in a public place that was meant to be a time of celebration, this isn't supposed to be. This isn't the way the world is supposed to be. And so we groan. We groan inwardly. 
I mean, who of you did not groan this week? Honestly, I mean, none of us could walk through a week week like this and still call ourselves human if we haven't groaned. And not just those of us in Boston, but I I believe all of those around the world in watching what has taken place here are, are groaning and moaning as we see the things that have taken place before us and the tragicness of those things. Everyone groans, but also, and perhaps paradoxically, we who have this great hope, this resurrection hope, we too groan. Here at Paul's climax in some ways of his beautiful epistle, this deep letter to the church in Rome, here when he's coming to the climax and the crescendo to declare the greatness of God and the greatness of resurrection, he talks about groaning. He says, I... I consider that the, pre- the sufferings of this present world groaning because the world isn't the way it's supposed to be because bombs aren't supposed to go off on Patriot's Day at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. One of the ways that we live faithfully as people who groan is we weep with those who weep. Romans chapter 12. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says, for they will be comforted. In Psalm 62, verse 8, the psalmist encourages us to pour out our heart before him. God can handle our groanings, which often then get verbalized from just utterances deep within us to something that's more like a lament and a cry before him. God, these things should not be. How long, O Lord? why we read the passage from John chapter 11. Because, get this, even Jesus, even the one who knew what he was about to do just a few minutes later in raising Lazarus from the dead, even the one who had the power over death and Hades, as we read in Revelation 1, who knew that he could raise the dead and would do so in just a moment, even he, in the midst of of a broken world that had been marred by sin and by death and by evil, even he groaned. In that shortest verse in all of Scripture, verse 35, Jesus wept. So surely if Jesus groans and Jesus weeps at the destruction of death in a situation as with Lazarus, who just got sick and died, then he is weeping now in observing the tragedy that's gone on before us in this week. And we too weep and groan. We feel. Three things about our groaning. One is our groaning is a solidarity with those who suffer. With those who are bereaved. We don't come out of this because none of us in this immediate community were directly affected and think, well, good, just missed that one. We come out, we groan, and we mourn with those who mourn. We express our human solidarity with those who are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, like us. And in so doing, we stand in solidarity with the bereaved and the suffering with a God who stands in solidarity with the bereaved and the suffering. Our groanings are also a protest. 
At their core, they're a cry that things should not be this way. Things don't have to be this way. Things weren't meant to be this way. And we protest against evil. We protest against the rulers and the authorities and the powers in this present world, in this dark world, against which our anger and our rage this week should be most directed, more than simply two brothers, but at those powers that were at work in and through their agency this week. And we protest in our groaning. We protest before the Lord that these things should not be. God changed them, stopped them, put them to an end. And we protest before our world and say this is not the way it was meant to be. And our groaning is also a cry. It's also an intervention. Isn't it interesting that Paul says we groan here in verse 23 along with all of creation that's groaning because things aren't the way they're meant to be. And then he links that up in verse 26 with the spirit who intercedes with groanings too deep for words. As we groan, as we feel humanly all that has taken place in this week, And as we've been affected by that, we also come in between. We carry out a priestly function to stand before God by his spirit with our groanings and cry out for his mercy to be displayed in the midst of such tragedy, for him to shine brightly in the midst of such darkness. But we don't just groan. If we were just to groan, then we would be prone to despair. We'd be prone to depression. We wait, Paul says, eagerly. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as what? As we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting eagerly for God's future. That future that we have talked about and thought about some over the course of this Easter tide already. That future when there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more tears. That future when all that is wrong will be made right. When God will do what God has declared that he will do. And we wait for that future that is assured because of all that we're celebrating in the resurrection of Jesus. As the foretaste, as the guarantee of all that is to come. And so we wait eagerly for God's future in a week like this. And we wait for it all the more desperately, don't we, in light of events as tragic as these. Something about the tragedy, something about the things that we've seen all week long should deeply tap into our cry, come, Lord Jesus. Come and make everything right. Come and fix the mess that our world so often is. Come, Lord Jesus, and make this right and good as you have promised to do and as you have begun to do. Psalm 62, for God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. 
our hope, what we wait for, is for the God who has defeated evil in the cross and in the resurrection of his son Jesus. And the God who will eradicate evil in the coming again of his risen son. We wait for him and we hope in him. Now let me note a quick distinction about this hope relative to the standard hope that has been talked about this week. And I want to be nuanced and careful here, but I think it's an important distinction for us to make as the people of God. The standard hope that we've heard this week is in the solidarity of Bostonians coming together, pulling together, uniting together, putting committees and task forces together to ensure that something like this does not happen again. And here's what I want to say about that, that we as Christians absolutely and completely affirm and participate in every effort and applaud every effort for the coming together of the citizens of this city and of our world, for that matter, to work for shalom and for peace and for blessing and for opportunity and for freedom. We do affirm and deeply participate in this. Yet, at the same time, our hope The bedrock, the foundation, the the substance of our hope is not in the cooperative efforts of humankind to make a greater and better utopia on this world. Much as we will fight for that, and much as we will work for that, our hope rests not in any one of us or in our mayor or our governor or our president or all of the committees that come together in thinking about these things, but our hope rests in a king who died on a cross, who was raised three days later from the grave, physically and bodily, who ascended to be at the right hand, and who now from the right hand of the Father is controlling and overseeing all of history and who will come back one day and make everything right. That's where our hope rests. And I would put to you that it's only when our hope rests there and it's only when we wait eagerly for this king to come again that we can then freely and with utter sacrifice and all of our efforts jump into the the workings on of our community around us without fear, without holding back, without counting the cost and be the best Bostonians that we can be in a moment like this to partner together with people of all faiths and people of no faith in rebuilding and in protecting and ensuring the shalom of the city. Waiting eagerly is not passive. Waiting eagerly is deeply active. It's deeply active After his great chapter on resurrection hope in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul ends like this. Therefore, my brothers, be steadfast and movable, always giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, for you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Waiting eagerly for the God in whom our hope rests alone doesn't mean that we check out and sit on the sidelines. It means that we roll up our sleeves and we jump into the mess 
And we work as tirelessly and as hard and as fearlessly for the new creation of God to be brought to bear in our present groaning world. For justice and for mercy, for healthy relationships and for love to be the defining marks of our city through us and through our efforts. Waiting eagerly is active and engaged. We groan and we wait eagerly. The final thing that I want to share with you in terms of how we live in a world like this is one that hits home much more deeply this week because of the proximity of all that has taken place. We know the world is evil. We know that bombs kill innocent people. 32 people died in a cafe in Baghdad this week. We just expect these things happen in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's sort of our mindset, not in Boston. We feel often quite insulated from the evil in our world. But that insulation was broken this past week in a very real way. We've been to Boylston Street. Some of you were on Boylston Street on Monday. Most of you have been on Boylston Street at one marathon in the past five years, probably. We were told on Friday to lock our doors and not to go outside, even though it was 70 degrees and it's been cold. We felt, I talked to somebody yesterday, not part of this community, so you know, we've been down there so many times, and the implication of that for all of us is it could have just as easily been me or you. And we felt the fear of Friday and a manhunt going on in our city and somebody who was violent on the loose, unaccounted for. And who didn't confront our own mortality this past week? Who didn't ponder in a more poignant way than perhaps we have for some time the fragility of human life and of our own lives? In the reality of a world like this where evil exists, and rears its ugly head, the possibility of premature death is quite real. How do we handle that? How did we handle that over this last week? Psalm 62. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Romans 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul writes, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation 
will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Written by a man who knew what it was to confront evil. Who knew what it was to face the possibility of his own premature and untimely death. We trust. We trust. We trust in a God who is our refuge and our shelter. We trust in a God who has overcome death itself. And we cling to him in a world like this. The feelings that we have had over the past week drive us to confront our own fears. And as we do with words like this, it drives us to trust in him at all times. Not one of us is guaranteed tomorrow. Not one of us is guaranteed next year. But what we know and what we can sink deep down into, what we can anchor into, is that we are united with a God who has defeated death. Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's our trust. In the word of Jesus, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And with that kind of trust, we can move forward groaning, And waiting for our King to come again. Amen.